Not only do we have two distinguished plenary speakers, but we also have a distinguished panel who have read the materials of our presenters and are going to uh, interact with what they've said. And then we'll have a discussion and some questions and so forth. But uh, first, let me introduce to you Dr. Danny Aiken here and Dr. Tony Morita and Dr. Matthew Kim. And uh, we are delighted that we can have uh, ongoing conversation about this important topic, the preacher is theologian. So who would like to begin uh, with uh, uh, some reflections on the presentations of our plenary speakers? I'll defer to Dr. Aiken. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Aiken. Since, since Dr. Aiken was not able to be here doing presidential stuff, uh, I will defer to somebody else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we should have separated them. Uh, uh, Matt, please. Uh, I think I've been deferred too, so uh, I'll, I'll begin. Uh, thank you both, uh, Dr. Dates and Dr. Chapel, uh, for your insightful and uh, shepherding spirit as you led us in those uh, plenary sessions. Um, as I begin my reflection, I was reminded of a student's uh, question as he raised his arm straight into the air um, in the first preaching class. As he proceeded to ask me, is it okay if I build my ministry as an itinerant preacher? And I responded, sure, that's not a problem. But I asked him why. And he said, I love to preach, but I don't love people. And I think this gets at the heart of what both of you have been sharing with us in these moments, is the dichotomy of studying about God in theology and actually knowing the heart of God and knowing God. And as I think about just the movement of our culture, the expeditious way that search committees filter through uh, pastoral resumes. I was having a conversation with a, a Korean-American brother, a friend of mine, who shared with me how in Korea these days, and in Korean immigrant churches, uh, the, the prerequisite to be a senior pastor of a larger church is to have a PhD. And so the, the committee will filter through applications. If the person does not have a PhD, they're immediately passed over. And their rationale is, a, is an honorable one, uh, they, they believe in the, the traditional model that um, in order to be a pastor, you need to be the most educated person in the town. And so that, that is commendable. But at what expense are we following um, this model of uh, cultivating the, the mind but not the heart? In order to move forward in this discussion, as I move on to thinking about more of what Dr. Dades was talking about, uh, with regard to um, knowing uh, black liberation theology or uh, Asian theology or Latino theology, um, I'm pressed to think about my own experience of what it means to be uh, an Asian American in an evangelical, primarily uh, white world. And I'm pressed to think about my own experience uh, as I once met a, a Caucasian older pastor, um, 
and he, we were, as we were having dinner, he said to me, why is it that you Asians are so good at assimilating when uh, African Americans and Hispanic Americans are not so much? And this was the first words out of his mouth after meeting him. And I thought to myself, what does it mean for me to be a Bible-believing, um, orthodox person in, in an Asian face, an Asian body, um, living in a white uh, evangelical world? And it's gotten me to think about uh, the heart of both of your messages. That in order for you to understand my life, you need to know me and that I'm not just an Asian face, that I'm a real person. That seven years ago, I suffered a concussion playing basketball, and I'm still dizzy every single day. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, I'm constantly dizzy. That four years ago, my younger brother was tragically murdered in the Philippines. And my faith uh, has never been the same. Not that I love God less, but that I struggle in this body every single day, and you may know my name, you may know where I teach, you may know some of the writings that I've done, but you don't know me. And unless we actually engage with each other, that's the hard work of ministry. And that is exactly what both of you have shared. Um, I celebrate today, as I read yesterday in Christianity Today, that Walter Kim is now the new president of the National Association of Evangelicals. I celebrate with him as a, brother, as a fellow Korean-American brother in Christ. I commend it. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful. But at the same time, I don't want to just celebrate the fact that he's Korean-American. That perhaps one day someone might come up to me and say, congratulations on becoming the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, because we, we share the last name, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise you that that will happen one day. <laughs> But really, at the core of what I'm talking about is that in order for you to understand my life, it takes time. It's not an expeditious looking through a resume, whether, whether or not I have the credentials to pastor this church or not. It takes actual lived experience. And so my prayer as we go forward in the Evangelical Homelike Society movement is that we would actually learn each other's names get to know each other's stories, for that is the true heart of ministry. And until we do that, um, I may just be another Asian face in the pew to you, but I have a life, I have a story, and I want to know yours as well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much, uh, what Charlie and uh, Dr. Chappell both had to say. Um, and I think I had two paradigms that came to mind. One was um, Luther talking about to be uh, a good student of the scriptures, you, you need to study, you need to pray, and you need to suffer. Uh, and this component of suffering both came out um, as uh, uh, Pastor Charlie was talking about uh, African-American history, studying it, reading about it, being aware of it. As Dr. Chapel was talking about uh, knowing your flock, knowing the people that, uh, what they're going through, um, and I, I do think um, being a pastor scholar means that we, we press into suffering. We, 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 we identify with it. We, we, we weep with those who weep. Um, this will help us 
press the significance of the text uh, in, into people's lives. And so um, it's, it's easy to have sort of a pristine study life of, of you know, studying the text in isolation um, and not really being part of the human condition and identifying with it and so on. And I think the, the, more, the more we um, identify with these struggles, uh, the better appliers of the text will be, the better pastors we're going to be. Um, so this idea of affliction, I think, is very important. And I think uh, as a pastor, you know, it's been said that we are wounded healers. Uh, we, we ourselves have been wounded. <laughs> we continue to be wounded. Uh, and we also will wound people as sinners. Uh, and I think uh, the need to incorporate suffering into our homiletic is very important. Um, and so I appreciated that from, from both of my brothers here. And the other paradigm that came to mind was in uh, 1 Thessalonians when Paul talks about how the word came with much conviction uh, and how uh, the people saw how how we lived among you. And uh, Dr. Chappell's pointed out in Christ Center Preaching uh, in one of his chapters, uh, I've claimed as my own now, um, just like the rest of his sermons, um, that uh, you, you have this Aristotelian logos, pathos, and ethos uh, in this text, right? The logos, the word came to you, the ethos, you saw how we lived among you, the credibility, and it came with power. And I think that ethos component is another aspect of homiletics that we need to recapture. Um, it's one thing to be able to, to give the word and we start there, uh, and to do it with passion, but it's the credibility of the preacher of the scholar. And that comes with people knowing how you live among them. And that's a very important part, I think, of being a persuasive and, and powerful preacher, uh, and scholar. I'll just add a, <clears throat> a short word. Yesterday, a student came to see me who's in our PhD program here. He's at this conference. And he was talking about, uh, you know, just kind of planning for his future and how he will move forward. And part of the conversation was, well, how do you go about looking for uh, professors of preaching to teach here at uh, the seminary? And I share with him, I certainly want them to be uh, well-credentialed, but I would never hire anyone that doesn't have a track record as a pastor. Because if they don't bring that pastoral component to teaching here, I don't think they will provide the necessary instruction that our students need to go out and be not only very effective and faithful preachers, but also faithful pastors. And so when you uh, look at how God's been kind to us here, uh, Tony taught here for a number of years, had been a pastor. Jim Shaddix had been a pastor. Scott Pace had been a pastor. Wayne Melioni is a pastor. So all of these men, well-credentialed, excellent preachers, excellent writers, but they also have a reputation and a track record of being a pastor. And I think we don't want to ever lose that combination. Uh, Charlie and Brian, interactions, reactions, conversation with our panelists. I was particularly struck by Dr. Chappell's forecasting of the future of the seminary in America. And I think we can all sense and see some of that coming. But I wonder if we can move preemptively 
by shifting some of the formal theological formation of students back to the church uh, in conjunction with the academy. Particularly, uh, what I'm thinking beyond kind of field education and internships and the like, but would be like, I know we would love to do this at, at Progressive, having professors teach in the church. Um, if, if I could get a preaching professor outside of myself uh, to come and to do a 12-week class at our church to train our preachers, not only would they probably get paid better than what uh, paid at, at a local seminary, but yeah, <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> but, but there, there would be this, uh, there would be this relationship uh, being forged and developed uh, again in between the church and the academy where that pastoral heart is being developed uh, and where that work is being done. And I, I think we can be more creative. I, I was really struck while he was talking. I think we can be creative in developing residency programs where students are called when they prepare, not only to a, the academy, but to a local church so that some of their cor coursework is being done both at the academy and in the context of the local church. I don't know that that'll solve the coming shift that's happening, but I do think that that's the way we're going to have to place some of it moving forward, uh, would be, is to be rather creative in the relationship between the, the church and the academy. Uh, Charlie, and, and Danny's gonna be more expert because he's more contemporary with us than I am now. There, there are all kinds of models being tried. It, it's, it's, now, the Southern Baptist bubble is different because, because of the support for the seminaries that most other evangelical seminaries do not enjoy. And so, uh, great risk of even those who were um, flagship seminaries for a number of years now, virtually all are at very significant risk. Um, and so, what will happen um, my guess is that they will be forced into partnerships with local churches. Now, the downsides is you just, may just be wealthy and affluent churches. So you have to say, how, does, how, do, you, um, how do you compensate for that? One of the, you all may or may not be interested, I mean, one of the real models that's creative right now is, is the Anglican model in Africa right now, where they are trying to leverage a few professors um, with local churches using distributed learning but really not worrying about the academic credentials, but really turning it back to the ecclesiastical body as the credentialing body, but uh, having the Anglican professors of Renown, um, either by video, by distributed learning, by whatever, uh, get into local churches, and the local churches are the ones doing the credentials using uh, the ecclesiastical professors from actually different places. So that, that will, the, the, Danny will know far more than I, the leveraging of the local church with the seminaries has been talked about for decades. It is now being forced. And uh, whether or not other than Southern Baptist seminaries can survive the next decade, they will, but as a shadow of themselves. Um, so that, but as Charlie was saying, there's great opportunity here 
almost to move back to an apprenticeship model that was part of our nation's founding for how we were establishing pastors, and maybe the continental model before that, and maybe the biblical model before that. So, Danny, I'm speaking more in your area than mine, but my guess is economics are forcing new models that actually may make us more local church uh, involved. Well, let me say, first of all, Southern Baptists are very fortunate in that we have this thing called the cooperative program so that a school that has a $31 million annual budget, I hold out my hand every year, and Southern Baptist put $7.5 million in my hand, and all I say is thank you. And that's an unbelievable benefit that our six seminaries have, so Brian's exactly right about that. Secondly, several years ago, I heard Don Carson talk about this very thing, and he used the word utopia. And he says in an article that this is what I think ideal theological education would look like, but it's utopia. It, it just won't happen. And personally, I was kind of challenged by that because I'd always thought that, you know, seminaries get picked on a lot uh, by people that will say, well, I went to seminary and they didn't teach me this and they didn't show me this and they didn't give me this. And my response is twofold. One, you're right. We, we didn't do all of those things. Secondly, that's not the seminary's responsibility. That's the local church's responsibility. There are some things that a seminary, I don't care how wonderful it is, there are some things we simply are not set up to do well. We're just not. And there are some things you're only going to learn in the refining fires of ministry in a local church. So in that context, I am absolutely committed to the proposition that the best theological education can take place in a partnership between seminaries and local churches. I would never say that a seminary can do what a local church cannot do. I would never say that. I would say that we're put together in such a way that we can do some things more easily than a local church. And you take the largest church in America, take any mega church you want, they're going to have a hard time providing a full-orbed theological education. They just don't have the resources and the personnel to do that. Seminaries, by their very nature, are set up to do those things. But we need to acknowledge that we cannot do things that should be done and are done best within the confines of a local church. So we created a, 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 an aspect of our school here called EQUIP. Uh, in fact, I'll let Tony say a word about it because his church is one of the finest and leading uh, churches in our partnership. I will admit it's easier to do that with churches close by than it is churches far away, but we still can develop something of a model in what Charlie said about some of our professors going uh, once a week uh, and teaching block classes. That can be done, and we are doing that in some places, but we are trying to take advantage of the fact that we're surrounded here by wonderful churches connected to the seminary with men that are fully credentialed, and they can provide this kind of partnering uh, in terms of preparing ministers. So maybe you just even share what y'all do at uh, Imago Day in that context. Uh, yeah, so we have a group of students, about a dozen. Um, they meet uh, once a week, always going on. Always going on. Uh, they're getting six hours of credit per semester. Uh, we meet currently from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Monday nights. And so we're looking at uh, pastoral care, administration, preaching, um, missiology, church planting, and uh, they're members of our church. And so it's, they're learning from uh, the elders, pastors, 
talking about these uh, these issues in the context of where they're serving, and uh, it really is it really is meaningful to them as we we bring up issues in our church, case studies. You know, uh, we we take the names off the emails, but <laughs> you know, uh, here's a situation. How would you guys respond to this? Just working with them in the trenches of pastoral ministry as they engage in the same textbooks that other seminaries may use, or they're doing the same kinds of assignments, but it's really earthed in a in a local church context. And yeah, they find it very meaningful. So we're toying with something in Chicago. Because I, I think you're right, Dr. Aiken, it's, it's got to be localized. And that is, our church went to two seminaries and said, would you give us a full ride and we'll take responsibility for the students' housing, health insurance, and stipend. They do their coursework there with you in partnership with us but we'll handle all of the contextualization as best we can. I, I happen to be very fortunate to um, serve in a city too where there are a couple of pastors with PhDs, ethnic minority pastors with PhDs, where we're circling back to the school now to say, well, would you let us teach a course or two? And so while they're doing class with you, we can develop a smaller cohort where they will do a class with us as part of their larger mm -hmm. curriculum. And when they graduate, we will help situate them for placement in a local church. We're, we're toying it with it, but what I, what I think to your point is gonna have to happen is in one sense, it's the local churches that reach out to the academies that seek to develop these relationships. And by the way, the schools we're dealing with are not in our denomination. Um, we just, we both believe the gospel. Um, and, and so we're seeking to develop that kind of uh, partnership, which in one sense grows out of the way that I was trained, to be honest with you. Uh, my church told me, you're not, we're not sending you to seminary to learn how to preach. Um, you already know how to do that. That's how they felt about us. Um, and we don't want the seminary to ruin you, was another thing that they said. And they said it in some very colorful language. Um, but, but, but those pastors um, took me under their wings, so to speak, and walked with me through my formal education and gave me opportunity to preach and to serve. Think of uh, Dr. B.J. Tatum, uh, K. Edward Copeland, and James Meeks, and even Dr. Uh, Dwight Perry, who they, they would not let me move into an ivory tower. Um, and then on the backside of it, one of those pastors, two of those pastors offered me jobs, which uh, you, could, you could see the investment kind of weaving through. And now the expectation is, which I fully uh, embraces that I'm supposed to be doing that for others. So we just graduated our first resident, but we would love to have a school of the prophets where you come to Chicago. What an interesting place to learn how to do pastoral ministry, where you come to Chicago and you get some of the finest education in some of our schools, but really the church 
and grandma who makes sweet potatoes and and uh, and learning from some of these young rappers in the city in the content. I mean, we got all kind of people coming to church, but you learn how to do church in that environment. You learn how to do pastoral ministry, but you also leave with the with the great skill of Greek and Hebrew and uh, and church history and all of that, that wonderful stuff at the same time. Well, in light of that about which you just spoke, Charlie, uh, takes us back to your plenary address last night. And um, it sounds like through that process of mentoring that you were able to deal with uh, the um, black theological types of commitments. And so could you talk about that in terms of becoming the pastoral theologian that you've become? Uh, thank you for that. And to Dr. Kim's uh, point as well, the, the notion of the pastor being the most learned person in the community uh, is, in my mind, one of the clearest snapshots of the African-American pastor in the history of American Christianity. He is, as Kenyatta Gilbert wrote in The Journey and Promise of African-American Preaching, sage, priest, and prophet, I think, Jared, is, are the three, the trivocal voice of the of the pastor. And so even though he may not have been academically credentialed to the hilt, he was still uh, known as the kind of expert historian, the cultural guru, the wise counselor, and the socio-political leader of the community. So I learned things in church that I never learned in seminary. Um, one that we didn't expect the seminary to teach in part, but also um, stuff that the seminary would never put its hands in. I, I mean, our pastor uh, sought to shut down Chicago Public Schools on the first day, uh, <laughs> almost 10 years ago now. He bust all of the students. He, he asked all the parents in Chicago who had African-American uh, kids to not let their students go to school on the first day, to load up buses, and we took as many as we could up to Winnetka, which had the... Uh, largest advantage of property tax infused cash schools in the state. And, and those are things that, you know, my seminary, God bless them, would never tell us to do. Um, <laughs> would never advise us to do. I'll give you another. I'll give you another. So we're at the, the church one day and uh, his assistant comes down the hall running. You got to meet pastor at the gas station right now. She's just telling all of us. And I'm thinking, what, what are we getting into now? And there he is standing with his hands in the pocket at the door. He just says, park your car in front of every gas pump. We're not leaving until they, they help this woman. Don't get any gas, just park your car. So I was like, oh, man, you know, well, at least if I get arrested, the church got enough money to get us out. That's what I was thinking at the moment, <laughs> a good lawyer. <clears throat> Come to find out that the owners of the gas station, and this happened quite a bit in Chicago, the Middle Eastern guys who come into these communities, they own the gas stations, they sell some of everything from it. They had promised a woman that she could leave her car there overnight because it broke down, something or another, and they towed her car. And so he, as the pastor of the church right down the street, uh, had come in and saw this woman sobbing. And he said, you know, we, we will park our cars here. You won't sell an ounce of gas. Un until you get this woman's car back. And the gusto, the, the I, I don't even know what else you call it, but standing on that righteous conviction that you will not do that, here trained my hands and my mind 
in the thinking of how the gospel has to apply contextually to people in that context. She saw the preacher and saw hope. She saw the pastor and said, you can help me get out of this. And, and in that moment, the church rallied to answer her call. So, so I think that uh, you learn within that context. I, did, I learned within that context, not from James Cone, not from, not from Henry Mitchell, not from uh, Roboto. I learned from James Meeks how, how that gospel pushes the hope of the community and also pushes the church to solve problems in the lives of very real people in that way. Well, it's, it shows that the, the pastor theologian is not just a, uh, a closeted uh, thinker, but the pastor, is, the theologian is a pastor leading people in ways that you would never expect. And that uh, places the gospel in very real contexts. And uh, uh, Brian Chapel, as you reflected on the development of uh, theological education, and you led up to that that interesting um, paradigm. There, I'm, I'm, I don't recall the name of the author, but you said that there was this, this different taxonomy in which Michael Kruger. Yeah, how how do you see the development of the uh, pastor theologian uh, take place because in some ways what you're showing us in that uh, taxonomy is a, a, a dicing out of in many ways what this is um, uh, talking about. Can you comment on that? So I, I like that Michael is willing to say that you know there are different stages of life, there are different giftedness, there are different callings, different settings. But if one is a pastor, scholar, scholar, pastor, what, what you can't take out is pastor if you are training other pastors. Now, if all you are doing, no, that's, that's wrongly said, if you are doing the important work, let's say, of I just want to be able to do Hebrew exegesis, and somebody's got to do it, and it's important to do. Um, but if you're saying that is what is equipping pastors, I'm going to say, no, that's equipping the knowledgeable of what they need to take to pass, but that is not fundamentally what a pastor alone needs. So I think it's the taxonomy is willing to let people say, given my personality, my calling, all that needs to be considered, that's good. But I am not a pastor scholar if I'm not pastor. I'm not a scholar if I'm not pastoring. I'm not a trainer of pastors if I don't have some sense of what their calling is. And so I think he, he is saying Stage of life, personality, gifted, all goes into the equation, and all that is the Lord's blessing and uh, variety of giftedness. But you can't take pastor out of the equation when you're talking about training pastors. Well, why don't we open it up for questions that you might have uh, that you want to engage with our plenary speakers or our, our panelists as well? Good morning. My name is Endel. Thank you so much for your investment in challenging us. Uh, my question would be, um, Carl Bart talks a little bit about the responsibility between the preacher theologian uh, and the congregation. 
uh, in his prologue to systematic theology. And in a day when we are greatly concerned about what is happening in the life of the church, um, how do we... How do we as preachers help hold the congregation responsible to give us the appropriate feedback? And then how do we listen to them in such a way that they can press us as we expand our horizons to become that locale of the preacher theologian? If, part of, if one of the dance partners is not dancing very well, how do we continue this elevation? And just, that's just my country boy term. So Tony, take it. Take a, take a stab at that and help me help me understand the risk with that and then what we can do to compensate in a, in a fairly declining atmosphere, as I understand it. There's a second comment of dancing uh, here at EHS. We have seven <laughs> deacons dancing. Um, I'm impressed. I didn't think we would get any, any swag here. Um, yeah. So in terms of model, I think, I think um, part of what will make our application very pastoral uh, as we're talking about showing the significance of the text and applying the gospel to certain situations, is clearly hearing from our people, listening to our people. I don't care how big a church is, I think every pastor should do some measure of counseling to stay in touch with uh, the flock. Uh, in addition to that, I think um, as I think about the work of exposition, I see sort of three ways we do it. We do it... Um, you know, and I, I liken this to golf clubs, which is not an original metaphor. I read it somewhere a long time ago. But you've got the putter, which I liken to one-on-one. Uh, you've got the irons, which is more finesse, and I liken that to a class, a small group. Uh, or you've got the driver, which is like the pulpit. And in each, each of the contexts of pulpit, classroom, and small one-on-one or two-on-one discipleship, we're, we're doing exposition. Um, and we're going to do it well the better we know the people that we're talking to, right? And so uh, it's a lot easier to do the, 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 the putting <laughs> uh, because we're getting feedback. It's more dialogue. It's more dialogue in a classroom. The challenge, I think, is getting dialogue from the pulpit. Um, and I don't mean talking back because some of us never get any of that. But um, I, I've learned from Charlie how to provoke a little bit uh, during his last two talks, uh, looking from this side to the next side. Anyway, I'm incorporating some of that tomorrow. So uh, some of our folks are here in this event. Anyway, um, for, for us, what we, did, we, we built in was uh, sermon-based small groups. And so we have, uh, we have 12 elders. We have uh, roughly 800 members. Uh, every member is in a small group. And uh, our elders are over these groups, and uh, they're, they're giving feedback discussion on, on the sermon. And it really is humbling at times to hear what people actually heard in the sermon. <laughs> it's, um, it, it shows weakness in my clarity. It shows what really hit a nerve, what perhaps we need to press into more. And I, I'm not suggesting every church needs to go to that model, but it has provided one way that we're able to get some feedback from, from the preaching. What are the weaknesses? What are the strengths? Uh, what do we need to, to touch on more? Um, and so I, this idea of seeing the church as your preaching dome where you just show up and deliver and don't talk to people, I don't think is going to make you a very good uh, pastoral preacher. It can make you a good um, 
performer. It can make you a good uh, deliverer of information, perhaps. But in terms of showing the significance of the text, I'm going to do that a lot better when I'm engaged with people, when I'm hearing back from people. Uh, and uh, not every pastor really wants some of that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very important, I think, for our maturity and also for our people's maturity that we are getting uh, a sense of where they're at and what they're hearing uh, and we're pressing into the suffering that we've talked about already uh, and understanding that. So um, that's just a few things anecdotally that we've done at our church. We teach a lot of preaching, but how do we teach preaching to people that are different? Uh, Dr. Kim uh, pointed out in Cultural Intelligence in his book about the preaching of different uh, Cultural. So how do we do that in the seminaries? Because we are facing that problem and coming through seminary, I personally have faced that problem and taken what I've got to go back to my church and try to preach that way. It's been the Eurocentric way and that's been the training of the Eurocentric way, even with the preaching and the theology. The theology has been Eurocentric and that's all we've been going. That's why we deal with our liberation theology. That's why we have so much problem with black theology and Asian theology and how do we understand those two different theologies. So how do we mask that and marry that in the theological setting of what we teach? Because we are so adapt to systematic theology. So how do we break that down? Uh Charlie and I were speaking a little bit earlier. Um, I, I think we have to get into each other's worlds. So um, Charlie spoke at the MLK Memphis um, anniversary time, and we took about 60 people from our church, went with another church in town that we, we uh, both uh, an African-American church in town, and we traveled together and went down. I will tell you, that was very hard on our people to, to be at that conference. Because they were outside their bubble, and they were really outside their comfort, and they were hearing things that they felt were unfair and unkind, and but they were. I'm forced sorry to talk. about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they, no, I wouldn't talk about you specifically, although it was you. No, it wasn't. Uh, uh, no, every, everything. Now, I'm, this is going to sound really strange. Uh, um, we have groups of men in, in that church who have Bible studies together, and because of my personality, they fish together. Now, if they had not been fishing together and in Bible studies together, I think that conference would have blown those groups apart. But because they, they just kept talking, and we'll do a mission conference together with that church, and we have united worship with that church quarterly, and we, you know, we, we just keep getting together. Are there people in our church who hate it? Yes. Are there people in the other church who hate it? Yes. But the leadership is for it, and it's really not the pastors who have been the glue it's been these people who are willing to fellowship together, study together, do some recreation together, go to cardinal games together, <laughs> you know, things like that. And, and, um, and now we've, those two churches have had four other churches who are now joining us. Now we have, you know, we are listed, Peoria, so we are, we are listed as the worst place for a person of color to live in the nation right now. I mean, it, it is, you know, a northern city, but if you talk about inequities, we're, we're as bad as you get. And so we are an affluent northern suburb who has the sister relationship with the largest African-American church in town. And previously, you know, there was just no conversation. And so it is very hard for our people who think, oh, we don't have any prejudices. We don't have any difficulty to hear from God. You need to know how we're hurting over here. 
And, and, and then to hear from most people, you know, when you talk to me that way, I'm not sure I can hear you anymore. So, you know, how do we keep... So I, living in each other's worlds is probably more local than strategic, but it, it is something about... So we will have a mission conference in March, and this is the first time we've had the two churches doing their mission conference together with, with a friend of Charlie's and mine. And, and, and we just keep trying and stumbling and trying again. And, and um, so I think getting out of your world, we're not, um, what do we do? We, we translate into four languages every Sunday. Now, it's not because we have, ton, we have four different ethnicities, ethnicities in number, but if we say, well, we'll wait till they come and then we'll start translating. Well, who's going to come if they, if they don't have the services in their language? So we, we are translating. Some groups are large, Korean. We, we translate into Korean every Sunday. Um, we translate into Spanish. We don't have a large Spanish population. We have a huge Indian population. So we translate into Hindi every Sunday. And so we're trying to get ahead of some things, even though there's not a reason yet to, tr- to cross worlds. And... and so we just hired our first Indian onto staff. And we think, oh, isn't that great? Already we know that person sees the world very differently than the rest of the staff. And, and that's going to stretch us and challenge us. So I think it's living in each other's worlds and Luther's theology of the cross. That will require sacrifice of the majority culture, even as it will require sacrifice of the minority culture, the minority culture is expecting to sacrifice. The majority culture is not expecting to sacrifice. And, and so we have to keep saying, this is Christ in you that is requiring this of you to understand your brother or sister. And anyway, that's more than I intended to say, but I mean, we're trying to get ahead of it and, and live in each other's worlds. I would say amen, amen, and amen. I, I'd like to add to that. I think that there needs to be a push for more writing and publication and more open doors for non-white men who, who are evangelicals who actually publish on the subject of preaching and theology. For whatever reason, you guys have owned the presses and the publishing houses, particularly in evangelical spaces. Room needs to be made for voices like mine and others and then a call needs to be made, hey, sis, hey, bro, we're going to work with you till you get the writing project done. Because I don't have time to do nothing else, I feel like. But I desperately want to write and get these things out. And then when those persons write, we need to say to them, we're not expecting you to be a white man in an Asian man's body. Or we're not expecting you to write the white way or the white theology from a black person's perspective. No. We trust you, we trust your commitment to the scripture and to the authority of the scripture and to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be you, and we will make a platform for receiving your writing when it's done. We won't compare it and go, oh, it's not Brian Chapel's Christ-centered preaching, or oh, it's not Don Carson or John Piper. No, it's Charlie Dates, and we like it. And we're, we're gonna run it in our curriculum, we're gonna run it through our syllabi, and we're going to encourage our students to start reading you all. And, and so if, if we, as I have, pass through your schools, and you have relationships with publishers and, you know, Todd Steele and Baylor Press and all that stuff, you pull them aside. 
and say, hey, we, we want you to publish this girl. We want you to publish this guy and then start adding it to your curriculum. And let's see if we can't. And I mean this, if we're serious, in this room alone, that could change the complexion of the nation in the next eight to, 10, eight to 12 years. We, we, could, we could have books in preaching, in history, and in theology that are not paternalistic or patriarchal in the sense of white people are our fathers in the faith, not that kind of thing. You can just make room for us to publish and to make our works, to celebrate our works in your school. That kind of thing would go a long, long, long way. If I may just add, great word. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just, just to uh, try to answer Harry's question, uh, one of the things I've been trying to do intentionally is to have students in my cultural exegesis for preaching class imagine themselves preaching to a, a different culture. And they actually go to the church, interview a pastor and a congregant, gain uh, knowledge that way, uh, read books, of course, but also uh, really getting feedback from the classmates. How well did they do? Uh, and hopefully, you know, there'll be some students in the class who come from that background and they can actually critique them fairly and objectively. So until we do that, you're always going to preach to your own people. But if you're forced to do that, then you're going to expand your homiletical base to consider other people's perspectives. And just in terms of uh, constructing your class, three things I think a homiletics prof could do that I did not start out doing. Uh, one is, um, so uh, often in class we would watch sermons and give feedback, make sure we're picking some minority preachers uh, in class to view and not just those that, you know, whatever tribe. Um, uh, secondly, um, uh, make sure in our teaching of preaching history that we... Um, uh, profile uh, individuals of color and celebrate them and um, commend them, uh, talk about their works. Uh, and then thirdly, I think a practical thing to do in preaching class is have some Skype calls or, or Zoom interview pastors on their weekly practices and make sure those are also, you're getting some minority voices. I think there's some things you can do that will introduce some stylistic differences while maintaining the principles of exposition that we all share. Uh, and so I think it's those stylistic components and giving guys uh, models of, of ministry uh, that I think they'll find encouraging and hopefully, you know, will alleviate some of, some of that issue. And, and one more thing that comes to mind, when I was uh, writing my dissertation, uh, I was struck by the fact that I had to have relationships with pastors and churches who had the audio sermons that I needed for my work. In other words, there were no evangelical seminaries I could go to to pull sermons on A. Lewis Patterson or E.K. Bailey or Donald Parson. And I just wonder who's going to be avant-garde enough or courageous enough to say we're going to start a center for black preaching at our school and we're going to digitize all of these sermons from 1950 until now. And what I can tell you is if that happens, at least in our context, African-American students will start to come to your school to study because you have the material at your school from which to study. And that's just one lane. Um, there are so many other lanes that can be explored. But with some of the endowment money, maybe with some of the $31 million of the annual budget that, that is taken, something, some kind of center could be set up 
uh, and, and much like all of the other centers, you could have that center can invite then practitioners to come and deliver lectures and to preach during the course of the year. We do it for some of everybody else. I think now's the time we turn our attention to do it for others. If I may say, that conversation is taking place right now at Baylor. So, yeah. If I, I really appreciate this uh, line of conversation. I'd like to focus on something else that you guys have been talking about and pour a little gas on, on the fire as it relates to uh, reconsideration of the nature of seminary life and how, how seminaries work with churches and all of that. I'm a seminary president myself, and uh, we've been working hard on competency-based theological education. Next week, I'm going to be speaking to couple of hundred uh, theological educators about relocating the life of the seminary in the church, you know, like reverse engineering the seminary process. And I think this is um, a really exciting emerging uh, model in the world of ATS and ABHE and some of the other groups that we're working with because uh, it really allows for um, the church and the context to speak the, the issues that need to be primary in pastoral development. In other words, the seminaries need to start serving the churches instead of the other way around. We, we got to quit, as seminaries, we got to quit asking churches to, uh, to support us, to, to give us their money, to send us their best people. We need to reverse the polarity of that thing, and it's happening. And so um, when I hear you guys talk about... Um, you know, the value of the pastoral life as, as formative for, like, the best place to learn how to lead the church is the church. And, and um, so as, as schools, I'm, I'm excited that there's a, there's a movement emerging that's trying to take that seriously. And I just wonder if you guys are, are aware of some of those trends, uh, if you've thought about it, if, uh, if you're interested. <laughs> Okay. Danny's going to have lots more. It is, it is a big trend. It has weaknesses, too. And, and the weaknesses are, as was mentioned earlier, no church has all the resources it needs, nor does any strong personality pastor have all the resources that are needed to train a host of students. So how you don't become a church that just cherry-picks a few pastors who are well-known or a few professors who are well-known and everybody else gets excluded, or the church is only approving a few people that it kind of likes, you can, you, the hard part is going to be keeping the breadth of seminary education at the same time that you are getting the depth of pastoral understanding. And I think we are trying to find that mean right now, but we're being forced economically to find it. So, Danny, was that setting you up? I agree with you completely. I've said all along that uh, seminaries are not divinity schools. They're seminaries. And seminaries, by their very nature, are servants to the church. If we're not serving the church as well, we forfeit the right to exist. So we should always be in dialogue, listening to the churches, and I think we have seen a transformation how we deliver theological education. It's still in, um, it's still changing. Uh, this, uh, everything in our culture today changes so rapidly with technology and the ability to mobility and so on, so that 
Uh, I remind our faculty, and it's been hard. It's been uh, some real growing pain, especially for older faculty. And I'm 62, so I will put myself in that uh, particular camp. We don't deliver theological education today the way we did when I was a student, and certainly even when I first began teaching in the late 1980s and 1990s. There was no internet. There was no distance learning. Uh, There was none of that. Uh, There was very little church-based theological education. You left wherever you lived, and you went to seminary somewhere for three, three and a half years, and you lived there and did everything there. I'll just, again, I I know my school better than any other. Uh, We now have, uh, and I know it's abnormal, but we have about 4,800 students total. But we have more than 1,000 Internet-only students now. They, in fact, I have graduates that come in May uh, that I meet. They'll say, I, I took your class in hermeneutics, and I was like, well, that's great. I apologize. I don't remember you. And they will say, this is the first time I've ever been on the campus. Now, you may like that. You may not like that, but it's reality. Now, the key, I think, is to deliver quality uh, distance learning education. And it's a challenge, but I still think it can be done. And again, I remind all of you, your grandchildren, my grandchildren, they've been looking at a smartphone and an iPad and a computer. My nine-month-old can get her daddy's phone and begin to manipulate that thing and go find the videos that she wants to find. So when you say, well, they can't learn well that way, yes, they can. They've been doing it all of their lives. Now, that doesn't negate the need for one-on-one, flesh-to-flesh instruction and mentoring. But it does mean that the seminaries today, there are economic pressures, but they're just the way we learn is changing, has changed, and continues to change. So I hope, even though we're a large school, I'd rather us be a speedboat than a battleship because speedboats can turn quickly and maneuver quickly. Battleships can't. And so even if you're large, I think you need to keep that kind of mindset in terms of how we do education. And I do agree that partnering more intentionally with local churches and listening to the local churches tell us what they need. Now, again, sometimes they don't know what they need. So I'll say it the way my friend Al Mohler says it, give them what they ask for. But that doesn't prevent you from giving them more than they asked for. And I think if you can find that kind of balance, I think we have a future uh, for serving our churches as we move into a very interesting 21st century. I'm going to press a little bit, Danny, because I don't, I don't know the answer to the question I'm about to ask. But if, if you look at um, what is likely to happen it's, it's not just that there will be the ascendancy of a few seminaries that are able to survive. There will be the ascendancy of the expert of the professorial core, which will, which will narrow those who are respected, wanted, commenting in the larger culture. So there will be an orthodoxy that narrows because you will have, well, we know who are the three New Testament professors everybody wants to have, right? And instead of having schools now who proliferate and everybody, you know, you have a certain filtering and um, 
new voices coming in, challenging, and so forth. A balance that, that happens and a, and a variation that happens. So what, what we'll struggle with as we're having a few maintaining seminaries and the ascendancy of kind of the, the expert professorial core is, is how will um, that get dispensed in such a way that churches are not hearing a narrower and narrower voice of what is right and good and can be challenged. And I don't think we have the answer to that yet uh, because it's actually the direction we're going. And uh, I, I'd be in, because we, we know churches will have more and more ascendancy in their power just because the seminaries can't maintain. So we'll be looking at churches to inverse the model, to be providing more support, to actually being the places where student learning is happening. But then they'll just key into a few professors and everybody will be going to those same few professors. And then what happens when you need another generation of professors who haven't been employed prior to that? What will happen when you have uh, those few professors who become a cadre of unorthodoxy and nobody's there to challenge it? So I don't have an answer for my question, but if, if, that's, if that's the way things... And you know there's a for-profit organization that has tried to cherry-pick North American professors already, get all of their material on tape so that they become the go-to institution... They're not yet accredited because they couldn't make the financial model work, but they would love to be accredited. So they are the go-to place for all across the culture to go to because they cherry-picked the well-known professors over the last decade. Now, again, their model has not worked yet, but it's kind of interesting that that's non-denominational. It's a for-profit business, and they got the names. So what happens to the church long-term when you're trying to diversify and, and push the education to the churches? I, I just... With, with great respect, I just challenge you to, um, to uh, maybe pursue a little more uh, understanding of what's going on with this competency-based movement, because there's a lot of uh, really creative responses to the kinds of things you guys are talking about that go way beyond online learning and distributed learning and get way past the challenge you're describing about right. uh, about of the very real challenge of, a, of a narrowing the number of voices that have impact. Uh, there's some really cool things because of what you said about the, the economic pressures and the changes in technology and all of that that are forcing seminaries to think differently. And I'm kind of excited about where it's going. But anyway. I'd love to hear them. Well, this, this has been a, a good conversation for us to engage in. Did I, what? Oh, okay. We had another question, but okay. the, the, the microphone has been hijacked over here, so um, but go ahead and close. We'll just close out there. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good conversation for us to have on all kinds of levels. In some ways, we could end this conversation, and it might sound like we are singing a sad song and, and seeing the curtain close on theological education. Uh, yet, there is always theological education that's taking place. It's the venue in which it's taking place, or the venues in which it takes, is taking place. Let's face it, in the 19th century, the, um, the training of pastors took place in these rising theological schools, but there are a lot of rural pastors who are being trained uh, more in a um, mentoring type of relationship, and those kinds of things have continued on, whether it's expression in the African-American context or other contexts, you see. So, so it's a new 
day of challenges, but not one that uh, uh, provides for us a, a great deal of um, disappointment because there's a, a, a great future ahead for all of us in, in training men and women for the gospel ministry. And so uh, thank you for helping us to think about what it means to be a preacher and theologian and uh, in the various kinds of uh, context in which we find ourselves, but also to consider what it means to see the landscape of especially the church in North America change in its color and context. And that's been a great challenge that we've seen through our discussions as well, and uh, one that we will continue to see and celebrate.